Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society, and this podcast is definitively part of that effort. We're going to jump right in today. We've got a, a good lineup of our usual partner meeting format, so stay tuned. Buckle your seatbelt, get some business tips, market overview, and beyond. Enjoy. All right, Mike's going to give us some coverage on the venture market here. Uh, Mike, what's, what's the update? Yeah, the update is that, uh, you know, I think high level, and I think we talked about this even on, on this podcast, was a lot of people thought coming out of the summer, I think expectations were that September, October, November would be kind of an active market in venture world, people kind of regaining uh, confidence and uh, putting more capital to work. Um, and we just really haven't seen that, uh, the market's actually gone the other way. And, you know, I can share a quick chart right here. Uh, this is kind of what it looks like. So, you know, probably the opposite of what anyone would want to see in terms of how charts should look. Uh, Q4 looks like it's going to be dismal. Q3 was tough too. And, uh, you know, I don't really see any sign of that slowing down right now. I think, again, hopes are really that people will start to pick up deal flow again going into the uh, first quarter, second quarter of next year. And it looks like as the Fed signals that they're going to slow interest rates, that might give people confidence, start putting money back to work in long duration assets like tech. Uh, but for now, deal volume has basically grinded to a halt. Valuations are still coming down. And again, I think generally speaking, the problem here is bid ask between what VCs want to pay and what entrepreneurs are willing to accept is still too far apart. And because of that, we see a lot of inside rounds, we see a lot of notes, and we see a lot of, you know, quote unquote, kicking the can down the road on actually valuing assets. Yeah, and there's a quality dimension to this, right? Like the best companies right now are going to be more likely to raise an inside round or be able to from their existing mm -hmm. investors. Investors came into this market with a lot of cash warehoused in the funds, right? Uh, and so, you know, it's a game of when companies can't hold their breath anymore, because we all know this isn't private equity where the companies have profitable cash flows. A lot of the companies are by design unprofitable. And so uh, we've got a cycle where it's very clear uh, that a lot of companies are kind of delaying their raise and the yeah. volume's down. And, and venture capital is a, is a natural game of J-curves, right? And, and today we're seeing the great J-curve of how much cash do you have and can, can you get back to a valuation that's reasonable or, or close to your last round before you run out of money? And companies are, are, are not. And those companies are selling or, or getting acquired for low multiple exits. If they can, some of them are shutting down. And I think Q1, Q2 is going to be really telling uh, just how far that will stretch because a lot of these companies that might have raised end of 2021 had a year or 18 months of cash flow. That was the plan, right? That year is up about now. So those companies that are going to have to go back out to market uh, in the next few quarters. And I think it'll be really telling where, where companies price and, and what investor appetite is for these businesses. Yeah, I think the, the volume's going to pick up and pricing's going to get sorted out because oxygen's going to run out. But the other choice, I mean, just for, you know, folks not living in the driver's seat the way you and I are here in this industry. Yeah. It, it's down, 
it's slower, but we're, there's still a lot of stuff going on. We're hearing pitches. We're we're picking spots and making investments. So it's happening. Yeah. It's just slower than it was uh, certainly during the uh, pandemic and a little bit slower than I think it was right before. It, it's slower too. And I think that your point is, is well noted. There's, there's two things that I think we're seeing here. One, we're just reverting back to the mean, back to pre-pandemic levels. So all that COVID growth and bump and, and extra capital that was in the system is really being flushed out. So what the Fed wanted to do is happening. The other thing that's happening right now in venture land is, founder, is VCs are going earlier. So if you were a Series A or Series B fund now and you've got a ton of money to deploy, you're just pushing it earlier into pre-seed and seed. Because if you're making a bet at seed and you're giving a company three years of, of, of uh, run rate, you're, run rate uh, you're like, great, we'll put money in here. And in two or three years, if this thing's working and the market's loosened back up, we can reprice it at a, at a place that works for us. Um, it's just a good kind of easy place to put capital without having to face uh, the true narrative of, of valuations today. Yeah. When do you, what, what's your gut on when you think, I mean, valuations are down, what, what's the data, 20, 30% since the, yeah. since the top? You know, A, I think, you know, seed and pre-seed have, have stayed more or less the same within a little bit of wiggle room. Series A is down 20, 30%. And then as you look further into the growth market, it becomes more and more opaque because there's really not a ton of data there to, to grab a hold of. Yeah, that market's like at a grinding halt. Yeah. It's really all a lot of insider rounds and nothing's reported. And yeah. So uh, where, where do you uh, where do you think we bottom out, if you had to guess? When do you think this kind of companies come up for air, the the throughput starts happening again? We're going full velocity again. Yeah. What do you, what do you think my, that is? My hope is that by Q2 or so, it looks pretty clear that the Fed's interest rate policy is, is slowing down, rising interest rate policy is slowing down. I don't think we're going to go the other way, but at least it's stationary and people can have some conviction over what the cost of capital is. Yeah. Uh, that should open up the ability for people to invest more money in these places, have a better idea of what possible returns are, and thus probably push multiples a little bit higher again, which will let companies be more adequately priced for a next round versus where they were before. Because right now, if you gave a company two years of runway and you priced them at 50 times revenue a year and a half ago, they would have had to 5x the business, right? Or 6x the business, depending on, on, on what the terms were, just to get back to that valuation if the multiple comes down to you know 10x. So it's completely unrealistic for anyone realistically to grow into that valuation, especially with headwinds in the market that we've seen in terms of you know slowing consumer spending, slowing business spending, layoffs, et cetera. SaaS companies, right? A lot of them charge on a per seat basis. So all their tech companies are shrinking headcount. So what's going to happen to their revenue? You're going to have a big network effect of downward trend in revenue because a lot of these businesses sell to other startups and other tech businesses. Um, so it's going to be really hard for companies to reach their revenue goals. But if we see multiples start to creep back up a little bit, it will kind of even out their ability to raise capital because they might get back to somewhere near the previous round valuation. And then you might get more investor interest in doing the round. Interesting times, you know. Yeah. I, I, like you started off with it. I thought in September it was guns blazing. And yeah, you know, it's it's been third gear. It hasn't Didn't happen. we haven't been in neutral, it's just been slower. Yeah, I think the thing that I would leave like any founder listening with is like, you know, Tim Cook doesn't wake up in the morning and say, Oh man, how am I gonna do this? Apple's down 40% from the highs, right? If you raised your last round at a price that was quite high. And you're waking up this morning being like, wow, I, you know, we might have to take a down round 20 or 30% below. Like, that's just the reality of growing a business, right? It's never going to be all straight up markets. 
So as pricing changes, especially as drastically as it did from, from the top of the COVID market to now, founders, I think, should just have a realization that, hey, if we need more money, that's fine. And our multiple might not be the same. And that might mean that our mark-to-market price is lower. But if you're really building something for the next 5, 10, 15 years and your goal is a big outcome, this is just part of the journey. And like, if you can go and face that realistically, I think you'll have a better chance of raising money and a better chance of, of really like just surviving and growing a big business. And that might mean a down round. And guess what? That's not the end of the world. Thank you, Mike. Cool. Thank you. All right. Now over to Brett to learn about what's going on in the blockchain world. What's up, Brett? All right. So I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Apple's uh, in-app purchases policies and how they're adapting to blockchain. Uh, So this week, uh, reportedly, Apple blocked Coinbase's wallet um, on iOS because they made the decision that uh, all gas fees uh, need to be made through their in-app purchase system. Uh, So what does that mean? Uh, So typically, Apple takes 30% of all um, purchases made within uh, the applications on iOS. Um, So this is interesting, right? Because um, it's first, they wouldn't allow NFTs on the platform, but now uh, they've gone a little bit deeper and they're willing to allow NFTs on the platform, but everything, all payments in any form uh, need to go through that in-app purchase system. Now, this doesn't make any sense for those of us who understand how blockchains work. Um, you know, it's the the gas fees are basically just uh, you know taxes to be able to keep the network secure, um, and so these are just fundamentally uh, you know supporting the ecosystem. But uh, nevertheless, it's a good sign because I think it sheds light on you know what they could be missing. Uh, because one of the big frustrations with crypto and Web3 is the uh, lack of a push towards mobile, which honestly, you know, most of us uh, interact with uh, probably more often than we are on, on our laptops. Um, so it's it's a very interesting move. And we've seen like Solana, for example, uh, they're going to be launching their Saga phone in 2023. Uh, the Anatoly, the founder of Solana, has a, a background in this area. So It'll be interesting to see if there's any inspiration from from Solana's experimentation with their phone uh, that'll be adopted by iOS. I, I don't imagine that Saga will be uh, a competitor to uh, to iOS. Uh, it's built on Android, but nevertheless, I think it might create a good playbook for uh, how <clears throat> mobile phones uh, will end up adopting this technology because uh, at this rate, you can't charge 30% of the gas fee. It doesn't make any logical sense. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it makes sense, uh, that, that Apple wants to extract as much value as it can from, from its app store. Um, but, uh, they, uh, you know, could also be, uh, uh basically pushing out a, a tremendous source of revenue, uh, by charging 30% on gas costs, which, uh, are just used to support the protocols. So why is it a bad idea for them to charge 30% on the gas, right? They're- Apple's trying to make a vig on all the revenue coming to their platform. I get it. Why is gas the wrong thing to be charging? Yeah, I mean, so you should, uh, you know, you should be charging the product itself, uh, not necessarily the back end that's being used to support it. Um, that's part of the issue. 
Um, but it does make logical sense that they would want to extract as much value as possible. Uh, how, you know, how they end up doing that, I'm unsure. But, uh, you know, it, it is, especially if they integrate with with protocols like Solana, for example, where the fees are basically nothing, um, you know, it doesn't make sense to uh, push out an entire industry just because you want 30% of, you know, a quarter of a penny. Right. But are they pushing out the industry or is this the beginning of a negotiation to that's, get the fee? Yeah, that's the optimistic scenario. Um, right. Yeah. So the, the pessimistic scenario is that, uh, you know, they're just going to, uh, you know, push their market power on the industry and that they're not going to let anybody on without taking a cut of, uh, you know, on all these areas. The optimistic scenario is that, OK, they've acknowledged NFTs are a thing. They're allowing NFTs on the platform. So the next step is to hopefully, you know, allow them to get more comfortable with, uh, you know, allowing different areas of the space go rent free um, and then onboard, you know, DeFi, NFTs, uh, all these different things that are in the space. So, so yes, that's the optimistic uh, take on this. And this is technically possible though, right? Like I'm, I'm thinking, I'm sure the industry doesn't want to do this. But if they needed to say, hey, your gas fee is X, we're going to charge an Apple fee of 30% on top of it and then just pass that through to Apple. That could be done technically, right? Technically, yeah. That could technically be done. Yeah. Right. Um, so, this, so this is the beginning of a negotiating cycle to figure out how the money gets cut up and who has the most power and all of these ugly things that are constantly getting re resorted. Yeah. Again, that optimistic scenario is that, you know, they do acknowledge that, uh, you know, onboarding, let's say NFTs uh, would actually result in more revenue uh, than than purely just extracting 30 percent from the gas fees, which are are very, very, very small relative to the 30 percent you can get on an NFT, which could be, you know, a thousand dollars. You get 30 percent of that and then you let, uh, you know, the the 30 percent of, a, again, like a third of a penny go by. Um, so. So, yeah, I think this is the beginning. I personally think this is the beginning of, of a broader negotiation, as you said. Interesting times. Never a dull moment. No, uh, I spared you from some more SBF stuff this week. So uh, that's probably what's dominating the headlines. But yeah, that's I feel like that's going to be the headlines for a lot of time to come. Quite some time. But yeah. yeah. All right, my man. Thanks, Brett. Yeah, thank you. All right, now we're over to Fong to get a business tip for the week. Fong, what do you have? All right, thanks, Mark. So today we're going to be talking about community building, um, which is really important regardless of what industry that you're in. So having a large engaged community can really lower your customer acquisition costs because your community acts as ambassadors for your brand, and that creates awareness and builds loyalty. Um, a big community can also provide customer insight, and that can help you in improving your product and improving your brand experience. And then lastly, having a huge community also creates a moat around your business and helps protect you from competition. But building a community requires really thoughtful planning, and you have to be authentic, and it requires a lot of hard work, a lot of hard work, especially at the beginning when you're starting from zero. So here are some tips on how to start building. The first, firstly, set the purpose. So you have to have a clear purpose for building your community. You have to understand it. Your team has to understand it. And your community has to understand it. 
And in order to set this purpose, just try to think about who you're trying to build the community for and what the members will get out of it. It's important that you build your community around that need, not around your product. So for example, suppose your product is an e-commerce app. The purpose for building a community could be to connect merchants and allow them to share advice around growing their brands, but not about the app itself. Then start small, build in-person relationships, and then move it online to scale. It's funny because I find a lot of my advice, regardless of what the topic is, is about starting small. So in this case, start by talking to one person who you think is your ideal community member. Really try to understand who they are, what they're looking for, and how a community like yours can help them. And based on what you learn from this one person, curate a small group of core people, say like 10, um, who you think could be your first members. It's really important that you're thoughtful about who you include in this first group, because that's going to set the tone for how you build the rest of the community. Then build trust with them and make your core group feel invested in the idea. Ask them if they'd like to get together with other people who are interested in the same topic. So from the previous example, you can plan an event with 10 e-commerce store owners, get them together in person if you can, uh, maybe with a dinner or a happy hour, and start the conversation going. Start building trust between the members. That's going to be important. Then once you have this group, you can move them online and start facilitating interaction. So once you've established personal relationships with a core group, pick a platform that works for you depending on your your community. So it could be Slack, Facebook groups, Instagram, Discord, and move the group online. Post prompts and questions so that members can start responding and get the conversation going. Your most important job here is to facilitate the interaction. Make every member feel special, give them attention, make them feel like they belong. This is going to be important as you scale, but especially with this early group. Make them feel special because they are special. They have the privilege of being uh, at the start of something from the ground up. Make Make sure they feel heard by always responding to messages and comments. And then grow, grow, grow. But be okay with growing steadily and sometimes at a slow pace because it really can take a minute. There's a lot of manual work at the beginning, and there's going to be some awkward silences as you're trying to build a new community. But keep supporting engagement, keep facilitating the conversation, and keep the energy energy level high. And then once you get the ball rolling, you can really jumpstart growth with tools like influencer marketing, brand partnerships, an effective content strategy, incentives and reward and incentives and rewards. So um, those are going to be topics for future ep- episodes. So stay tuned. What's- yeah, what's what's the um, how do you think about who should be building a community as a channel? Because right, like when you think about marketing, a lot of people default to search engine marketing, paid marketing, maybe doing some SEO to get up in the organic feed. But community engagement is kind of um, it, it's a less controllable, less precise strategy, right? You know, you don't always know what yield you're going to get on time or dollars spent. So who should be using this? When does this matter? I mean, I honestly think that if you have customers, then you need to be building a community, which could is app. I couldn't, you know, I thought about it a lot this morning. Like I couldn't think of any examples of a, of a business that wouldn't benefit from, um, from a community, right? Even, um, you know, logistics companies like that. It could be, you know, trade 
a group of trade professionals. Like it, it really can be anyone that could potentially be a customer. Um, all the, they're all people, and people have needs, and they have you know with, with respect to the product that you're selling and why they need it. Um, and so I think it's really important for all companies. Okay, there's got to be people out there who are going to hear this who are founder founders who maybe don't have community or marketing DNA who are thinking, all right, maybe we should do a community, but why the hell would anyone actually want to join our community? Right? Maybe it is something like, you know, a construction product or, you know, I don't, I don't know where people maybe don't as commonly rally around a product. How do you think about what the value is for the members? How should people be thinking about that so they can maybe broaden their thinking about uh, where a community can be relevant? Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, that's why having a purpose is important, right? So you're not rallying around a product, you're rallying around a purpose, why someone would want to tap into a community based on the type of profession that they're in, uh, the type of, you know, uh, interests that they have. So I, I really think that, you know, regardless of your industry or the product that you're building, there is kind of an audience that has a need for that type of thing and really setting a purpose around that that is not around the product um, is is kind of uh, a, a way to create a community around something that's not really obvious. That's great. That's that's a big insight. Focusing on the pain point, not what you're selling. Exactly. Right, we had we had um, Lisa, one of the founders over at Little Spoon, on the podcast a long time ago, and she did a whole lot of uh, really insightful strategies, give a lot of wisdom around community building. And their community, although they sell baby food that's really healthy, is centered around, you know, providing healthy food to children. It's not about buying their product. Uh, that's something people might choose to do, but it's it's a mission-driven mindset. Well, the thing is that your product might change, right? So um, as you're learning more about your customer, like your product, you're going to tweak your product and it, it might go through a journey where it doesn't look anything like it did at the beginning, um, then if you're building your community around that, then your community may not may or may not be relevant. But if you're building it around a purpose, um, that it's always going to be relevant. Very cool. Thank you, Fong. Thank you. All right. Now we're going to hop over to Chris and do an uh, update on the broader market. Um, Chris, your new camera that follows you is giving me car sickness. This is nauseating <laughs> that's the point it's new ai driven uh 4k camera that i use specifically for the segment potentially too fancy okay what do we got in the market today? <laughs> um i'm gonna jump back today a little bit and, and and focus on two broader topics that i think uh are most relevant um especially given that we haven't talked that we haven't had this uh, recording for a bit so i think it's it's good to jump back and look at the broader picture Sometimes I feel like it's also the data that gets released every week gets a little too distracting. Um, so it's important to pick what's important. So this week in particular, we've got the NFP data, which is non-farm payroll, that it's the job data. Uh, in fact, that just came out this morning. Um, I think this is a good jumping point to talk about inflation and versus unemployment. So let's do that. And and. Basically, the gist of it is the NFP came out very strong. 
U.S. economy added 263K jobs in November. Unemployment rate remains at 3.7%. Hourly wage rose sharply by 0.6% month on month to an average around $33 an hour, uh, which, by the way, is the biggest advance in over a year. On a year-on-year basis, wages climbed around 5.1% versus 4.9%. Um, so, and looking at the data, you know, we're sort of back to the good news and bad news again. Markets sold off because it's perceived as sort of not so good data for the Fed, who's been battling inflation, as we all know, for the better part of the year now. And so now all eyes are going to be on CPI, which comes out in, in about two weeks, less, slightly less than that. My point of view is, uh, look, first of all, this data, obviously, jobs are very strong, but it's which, the headline number is still lower than inflation that we've had, which means household spending power is going down. And there are also other indications elsewhere, other data showing that uh, potentially inflation will go down. For instance, U.S. Man- manufacturing data, um, which is usually a leading indicator of inflation, that's been pretty weak in, in recent months. Another chart, another data point that I found during the week that I thought was very illuminating, which is actually this one done by, um, by Vanguard, they're showing that um, they're using effectively the, the hardship withdrawals from folks' 401ks as a proxy for uh, households' need for cash. And that has risen to the highest level historically. So what you're really seeing is, yes, you know, on average, people are getting paid a little bit more. But inflation is still relatively high. Spending power is going down. And people, for whatever reason, maybe it's a hangover from COVID again, are still spending maybe even beyond their means. So all that means that I think inflation is is on track to come down, maybe not at the pace that the Fed has liked. So that's, you know. Not necessarily a great jumping off point into 2023 when it comes to stock market, which, by the way, has been rallying uh, in the past month. Now we're back above S&P is back above 4000. So it's likely that, you know, markets are very exuberant because the res- we, we, what we've talked about previously, the risk events are dissipating, or at least in the near future. And people sort of need a recovery, um, given the, the massive sell off we've experienced. But going to 2023, I think inflation will stay high, but it will come down, but it will stay elevated at a level that's potentially still uh, the Fed is not comfortable with. So the, the rate path that we're on is that it's going to go, get higher and stay there for a little while longer. Uh, but overall, the economy is strong, right? So I, I don't personally, I don't expect us to come crashing down like some people have, have expected. Um, it's going to be a slow, slower grind. But maybe potentially a a um, a more mild mild version of of what people expect, at, at least at the beginning of the year. So that's one point I want to make. Um, a second event I thought was super relevant, which is China. Um, in fact, that's how we started the year. Uh, sorry, that's how we started the week. Uh, you know, waking up Monday morning, first thing we saw this massive news headline on China protests. Which is something that you know, part of the biggest protest that we uh, uh, you know, we've seen in in in, in a few decades. Um, there's this uh, article I think I, I circulated internally it's from uh, uh, Gavco Research, which is an independent third party research firm, 
Um, and I really agree with some of the points that was made in research. Basically, obviously, now Xi Jinping doesn't have great options, right? He's being backed into a bit of a corner here. Um, but I do think that this, this, the headline around the protests is maybe a little overblown. It's still a very small scale, and, and especially in a country that's 1.5 billion population with a lot of speech control and not so much uh, uh, freedom of speech. It, it's, most people don't probably even realize that there's a protest going on. Mm. However, this is an indication that, uh, especially the younger generation, is not is not content with the current policy and zero, especially zero COVID policy, and that's that is an early indication of potential unrest. So, really, what are the options here? Um, and the research article talks about, and I personally very agree. There are really just four options at this point for uh, the Communist Party, and number one is. What I don't think will happen, which is to basically put the whole country in a protracted lockdown. This is mostly just to affirm the political party's control over the country. This is at this point, I think, uh, an option that's a bit out of the out of the picture. The second one is really to have a targeted attack against these demonstrators, um, um, and then put the country in a temporary lockdown, but only uh, mostly to save face, but only to sort of slowly. Uh, give the what the demonstrators want, which is to, to open up the country and uh, decrease some of these uh, 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 sort of quarantine quarantine policy, quarantine um, uh, measure, me measures. Uh, I think this is definitely very, very likely, given what the country, the party has done historically. And number three is uh, potentially put the country into a brief lockdown, but signal to uh, everybody that that the government will in, you know impose tighter restrictions in specific targeted areas, but broad you know sort of on a broader stroke and a broader country level, uh, things will go back to normal. This is something they've kind of already done over the week. Uh, a lot of the news media came out saying the, the party came out and said that we're going to make sure people's needs are addressed, uh, which is their way of sort of backing down and softening their tone a little bit. And the last option is really to decide that, you know, hey, uh, open up the country immediately and, uh, and, and, and let the sort of the uh, uh, demonstrators and, and protesters have what they want. I think this is a very likely, not, not so likely. So really, we're, we're coming back to sort of option two and three, which is, again, targeting demonstrators, make sure there's to quell any sort of unrest and also put the country in a brief lockdown only to open up later. So what this means, this means to me at least, is that I actually take this as a net positive for risky assets, not only in China, but also globally. I think this is, has accelerated the pace of opening up China. And previously, we were expecting six to 12 months. Now it's the window potentially through to six months, which is great for sort of broader financial markets, which is why and if you look at Chinese markets, they've had the, probably the strongest month of recovery in a decade. And this week alone, um, Many of the top firms have recovered anywhere, anywhere between 10 to 15 percent of their equity value. The last thing I'll make, sorry, I, I've been rambling for a while, but I'll, I'll pass on back to you to, to some questions. But the last thing I'll make is regarding China, the one thing I think that these Western media is not addressing that concerns me a lot. I have this fear that um, that there be potential consequences to those protesters. Uh, if you look at the protesters that, um, uh, you know, at least that's being captured in the video, a lot of them are very young, right? They're in their 20s and they're college students. And this is the generation that's largely seen a very benign government. They have never seen what an autocratic regime can do. 
right? They've probably heard about it from their parents or grandparents, but most likely they haven't. So they're the one thinking the government will not do anything. They're the one out there protesting. But if the government decided to target these demonstrators, I think uh, there could be many uh, very uh, serious consequences to, to, to the younger folks. So I hope everything will work out on that front. And I'll shut up now. Yeah, that's crazy. What, what's the, you know, I read these headlines, but I don't fully have my head around it. What's the thinking for zero COVID policy at this stage in the game? Like when, when no one in the, literally the world knew how to deal with it, what the implications were, yeah. how it spread. We just didn't have any information. I got it, right? There was an argument yeah. for it then. But now they've got vaccines and they know who's impacted the most. Why aren't they doing, it just seems like the play is if you're worried about it, you do some sort of systematic dissemination, you, you know, releasing to certain groups at certain times where people are getting yeah, COVID, no, you, you're doing great it in a question. way. I, what are they I, doing? So, I actually don't even understand the logic for it at this point. Yeah, no, I, my, so we kind of have to backtrack a little bit. At the beginning of COVID, when the world's still trying to figure out uh, vaccines and, and, and the consequence of lockdowns, China's made the executive decision to not use any Western vaccines. They want, they do not want their economy, economy and their population's health to, to, to depend on any foreign country. And in fact, there is a lot of propaganda within the country that says, you know, basically West, these vaccine companies, Johnson Johnson equivalent are, are evil. They're trying to control our population health and inject this into our system, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of propaganda being done. Little did they know they kind of locked them, shut themselves in the foot a little bit there because obviously later on we know we, we, we knew what happened. They developed Sinovac vaccine, which has been proven over and over again, very ineffective against COVID, especially all the different variants. And at this point, and, and more importantly, Sinovac is, is, is also proven a little dangerous for the elderly population, anyone aged mm -hmm. 80 and above. So as a result, uh, you know, they're for, for the age group 80 and above, the vaccination rate in China is still around 50% till this mm. day versus the you know countries in the U.S. that's in the 85-90%. And on top of that, it's not very effective. So if, and by the way, there's about 20 million people in that segment in China. So if the country decides to open up, sorry, 40 million, I think, I'll need to check my numbers. I think it's around 40 million. If the country decides to open up, and that's the risk, that's the risk group right there, right? So assuming half of them are really exposed because not, they're not vaccinated, we're looking right. at potential real unrest in, in, in a country. But now Xi Jinping have, kind of have to weigh this against the younger population who don't care so much about uh, COVID and, and wants uh, all the you know, freedom and, and openness that they used to have, which is a much larger group. Of population, by the way, and it's the future of China in a way. You know, what do you do? Which one do you choose? And it's it's a tough choice for sure. Very interesting. Why can't they just um, start signing up to buy American vaccines now? I mean, everything <laughs> obviously is simpler in my head, but you know, I'm sure there's politics and politics, a lot of other things going on, but. Exactly. People are, are, you know, we everybody has access to information despite their control. You know, people can still get on a VPN and get access to to Western news outlets. So um, it's difficult to hide information at this point. So what they can what they have to do is to try to fund their own policies and, and propaganda that is set up in place in the first place. Right. And, and uh, yeah, no, it's it's politics. That's that's what it is. Wow.
Very fascinating. Uh, and then uh, the first bit you had talked about the interest rates. Yeah. It sounds like the Fed has accomplished a, is accomplishing a lot of what it wanted to accomplish. The yeah. country, the economy is still strong, but there's some pathway here. Uh, what's your gut? Do they keep increasing rates beyond expectations now, or do we, based on some of this new data, or do we think we're we're leveling out and the kind of economy is just catching up with the impact of the existing changes? Yeah, no, that's the obviously the trillion dollar question here. Everyone's uh, it's, it's been ever, on every allocator's mind. Um, my, my personal view is. Uh, look, we're, we're already at around 5%. I mean, the, if you look at the futures market, that's where we're headed. Um, we're currently at 4%, so there's probably another 100 basis point hike to go into 2023. Mark is pricing the peak around 5% at the moment. And I, my gut tells me that, that that's near probably where we're going to peak out and probably five, five and a half, maybe six. But we're going to stay there for a while. Right. So now Mark is pricing. If you look at the future, there's the, you know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of cheddars around this inversion, right? This, cur this curve inversion, you know, on the treasury curve, twos, tens, how it's been the strongest gap and the biggest, the widest gap in, in 40 years, which is an indication for a recession next year. I think the twos, tens might make sense, but if you also look at the front end of the par curve, which indicates a more, sh more sharper, sort of drastic turn of policy into a more accommodative, you know, cutting and maybe even QE kind of uh, uh, open uh, open operations next year. I think that's that's a little too early. I think I think even even Chairman Powell came out and and defended that uh, the Fed and and, and in, in sort of emphasized how difficult it is to reverse their stance and come straight back to a more accommodating stance. My gut tells me that we're going to be in a high interest rate environment for a lot longer, potentially two years. Just to combat inflation, bring everything back to normal instead of the sort of the six months, one year window that the market participants till this day still hope for. So higher interest rate, but we're near there, but longer, um, which could really bring down demand, bring down GDP. We could be in a recession, uh, in a technical recession again. Uh, but I do think, and of course, jobs market will suffer. But I, I don't see a scenario currently, at least, where we're, we're back to 15, 20% unemployment rate and people are suffering. And um, I think that's still very unlikely. Thank you so much, Chris. And for everyone listening, just a quick reminder Chris is a SEC registered RAA, and nothing he said should be considered or construed as financial advice, yada, yada, yada. It's a pleasure, Mark. All right, everybody, that's a wrap. Hopefully you enjoyed today's pod. If you have any questions, let us know. You can get me on any of the social media platforms, particularly Twitter, at MPD. And uh, stay tuned. We'll be in touch again next week.